The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Archie Got Hot edition. It's Wednesday, February 8th, 2017. On today's show, Archie Comics has been a staple of American pop landscape for 75 years. The brand's been revived in a new, noirish, and studiedly dorky cool show called Riverdale. We'll discuss whether it should have been. And then Hell or High Water is the great West Texas suspense movie featuring Chris Pine and Jeff Bridges. We've been meaning to talk about it for a while with its Oscar noms. We now have an excuse. And finally, it's that time of year again. The Patriots have cheated their way to another title, and we discuss Come Super on, Bowl man. At... <laughs> <laughs> Editorializing right in the top. Bait taken. I love it. It was like a fucking astonishing Julia, finish. Julia, <laughs> I, do not interrupt me in the middle of my introduction, please. And we discuss Super Bowl ads with national treasure Seth Stevenson. Joining me today, now you can talk. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Go, Pats. and of course slate's film critic dana stevens dana hey hello steven greetings river vixens um (laughs) i i felt like i had to say that (laughs) from archie kins all right uh uh, julia before we dig in um i'm sure we've got business what do you have we will be returning in our plus segment today to the topic of whether it is acceptable to punch a nazi uh, when Dana, Steve, and Jacob discussed this a couple weeks ago, they all agreed it was not. But we have gotten like an extremely heated pile of mail of people pushing back on our brisk conclusion, or I guess you guys' brisk conclusion that, in fact, you just generally shouldn't punch people for various reasons. So we will be joined by Christina Cotarucci of Slate, who will boldly argue with us that punching Nazis is acceptable and perhaps desirable in various conditions. In plus, if you are not yet a plus member, you can join at slate.com slash culture plus to hear that segment and bonus segments of our show every week and to hear an ad free feed of slate podcasts. Our other update is that we are doing our first ever live show in Washington, D.C. on April 19th. Tickets for that are not yet available, but we will let you know as soon as they are. Until then, save the date. And finally, uh, as we announced next week, we are discussing 1984, the dystopian novel by George Orwell, which I believe only Dana of us has read, despite... And uh, that's so many years ago that it might as well be another age. And despite Steve's undying Orwell fandom. uh, We will discuss that a few weeks from now, so you have plenty of time to dig in and uh, get up to speed, and uh, look forward to that segment. All right, onward. The supposedly timeless, super-idealized world of Archie Comics has been brought back to life and possible relevance in the new show, Riverdale. We still have Archie, Betty, Veronica. These are Zoroastrian archetypes and remain. So in the show, in the current show, only now they are embedded in a contemporary teen angst noir. The show begins with a mysterious death and is dripping in sarcasm and, and atmosphere. It is also, in my estimation, shot through with some sweetness and light as well. Uh... It's a funny mix, and we'll tease it out after we listen to a clip. Are you excited? Nervous? Both. I haven't seen him all summer. Which is why nerves are acceptable, but we agreed, Betty. It's time. You like him. He likes you. Well, then why, Kevin, hasn't he ever said or done anything? Because Archie's swell. But like most millennial straight guys, he needs to be told what he wants, so tell him. Finally. We'll see. I mean, it depends. Oh, my God. What? Game changer. Archie got hot. He's got abs now. Six more reasons for you to take that ginger bull by the horns tonight. (laughs) (laughs) That's just fantastic. Uh... I, I mean, I could scarcely sleep waiting to know what you two thought of this show. Uh, who wants to start? Julia, what do you got? Um, I thoroughly enjoyed this show and would recommend it to people who are looking for a tasty teen soap to watch on television. I feel slightly at sea in assessing it because um, I know no more about Archie Comics than the fact of its archetypes. Archie, Jughead, Veronica, Betty back and forth between the vivacious brunette and the sweet blonde. 
it, like, period. That's all you I You don't know. even get to, like, the moose and midge <laughs> level or... I didn't even know until this show that Josie and the Pussycats were, like, an extension of the Archie universe. Like, that was new information for me. So, anyway, so it's hard to read for me to read this as, like, an Archie iteration. And then I'm, like, not... Despite what uh, close listeners of the show might anticipate, I am not a teen soap completist or a teen soap mystery completist. So... You know, Veronica Mars, Gossip Girl, more recently Pretty Little Liars, like, but basically, you know, dating back to 90210, each era begets its own teen soap. Some of those teen soaps have murder mysteries attached, some don't. Um, it's like a endlessly entertaining genre. Um, and I don't know that I can suss out the distinctions between this one and all those other iterations, but I will say what I liked about this was that it seemed... Um, First of all, visually very stylish. Like, it looks excellent. It's sort of, like, luscious and um, color-saturated and gauzy in its hues and just looks interesting in a way that makes it sort of visually fun to enjoy the soapy turns. And then it is somehow knowing without seeming jaded. Like, all Mm -hmm. the characters are, like, a little too self-aware and all of their lines feel a little um, unnaturally precise and canny. And yet, perhaps this is because of the kind of like mid-century middle Americanness of Archie, like they still seem sincere and sweet and not just like uh, what I understood to be Gossip Girl's air of, of insufferably knowing cosmopolitanism i don't know somehow the stew of it is unusual enough that i found the whole thing pretty compelling uh dana where do you where do you where do you come down on riverdale i found it i found it dull and clunky i agree that it does have a sweetness it's not a cynical show and so that makes it not leave a bad taste in your mouth but those 48 minute episodes went by very very slowly (laughs) i mean the the tonal indecisiveness, which I guess is supposed to be part of its postmodern pastiche or something, to me was just irritating. There's there's a character, the Queen Bee figure, who seems like something out of Mean Girls or I guess the Gossip Girl kind of universe, right? And is this is a is a very modern construction. And uh and then there's sort of rah-rah cheerleader football world that seems like it just harks back to you know, absolutely archetypal 50s land. The fact that Josie and the Pussycats are a black group, but that's their only their only role in the show is to show yeah. up as the black entertainers is a little strange. The race issues on the show are not, not I so just hot. There's there's something about this show that, that felt um, so high concept and clever that it, it I didn't feel like it had a soul or a spirit, really. That said, mm. I, I laughed a few times. It's, it's sort of fun to see the classic um, casting. I don't know if you'd call it an error because it clearly is on purpose, but it's the 90210 thing of putting actors in their 20s or possibly even early 30s in a show <laughs> where they're supposed to be sophomores in high school. Um, I don't know. It, it was so replete with cliches and just so overdone and so boring that I really don't care. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I'm oh, but I will the... say, I will say that there's some funny, funny stuff. Just if you are at all familiar with the Archie Comics universe, which I am, just simply from its ambient presence in my childhood. In fact, my ten-year-old daughter recently read a bunch of Archie comics, and I have no idea what she sees in this '50s world of heterosexual courtship. But some things, like the idea that Jughead is an emo blogger who <laughs> narrates the entire thing in a sort of depressed, monotone voiceover, that that was funny. Um, I'm going to break the tie here. I'm going to say that it's um, totally uh, unnecessary, you know, that the revival of the archetype taps into nothing in the um, collective pop consciousness of the young people to whom it's targeted. And its tone probably will not land with uh, old people for whom these remain important archetypes. I don't care. It's a smart launch. I loved it so much. And <laughs> oh my I'm completely God. dedicated to watching every freaking last minute of it. You're going to ride the ginger stallion all the way? I'm going to ride that ginger stallion until it bucks me off, <laughs> Dana Stevens. I thought, because truthfully, it has everything going against it in a way, right? It's It's liable to be shot through with faux innocence and faux knowingness the balance is probably going to be wrong like how do you relaunch relaunch archie as twin peaks i hate the completely random use of something just because it's familiar uh, and for no other reason uh the kind of blockbuster hollywood blockbuster mentality just like any kind of pre-sold material um recycled uh, on the flimsiest excuse it didn't matter because the 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 thing that they would get wrong once they decided to do Archie Comics meets Twin Peaks, would be to lard it up with atmosphere 
and a kind of knowingness or cynicism, um, <clears throat> but then have it be otherwise completely indistinct. I didn't find that at all. I thought actually the writing was very sharp and the characters were sharply drawn. I thought the performances were were by and large very nice. About the only thing I didn't like was the um, was the enemy girl. Did seem like the mean girl seemed a little... Cheryl? Improbably named Cheryl? Improbably named Cheryl. Um, the only other thing I didn't like is I'm old enough now to be watching a show in which Luke Perry plays the dad. He was old enough to play the dad in the original. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, taking Dana's point, yes, exactly. But I'm having an amazing amount of fun watching watching it, though that could be my midlife crisis speaking. But... Um, May, is it possible that the Trump presidency has just like screwed Steve's and my dial so that we're like, we just want to watch This Is Us and Riverdale in alternating order over and over again on the couch and like never. I'm just the opposite. The Trump administration makes me feel like we have so little time left. We can only experience great art. <laughs> Get me to the Met. I had, I had a dream last night that that Iran had launched like nuclear missiles at us. And I woke up this morning and was like, did that happen? I guess I would know by now. <laughs> So you know, maybe, it, maybe it's in that context. Quick, to the hur- tweets. Hurry, hurry watch happened. more Riverdale. I mean, no, <laughs> That's I'm, what I'm going to do with my waning days. Like, <laughs> and the seven minutes or whatever it takes. As the mushroom cloud rises. I want to find out who, who killed somebody. Jason, Blo- Jason, Jason Blossom. Blossom. Yeah. Just oh, that's... Let, me, let me know that before, before it all ends. Wait, another yeah, well, huge... And also Betty or Veronica. I mean, the eternal question, right? Good or evil. Um, though she's, it's good versus good, I guess, in this one. Um, here, I'll hazard one meta theory before we move on, or um, which is that um, I think pre '08, I'll, I'll give I'll give '08 as the um, as the landmark turning point in a recent American culture. Prior to '08, I think a show like this would have been somehow essentially mean spirited, and um, <clears throat> mean spiritedness took a huge hit when it turned out that investment bankers had fucked all of us over universally. And in the eight years since, shows like this have really found an actual beating heart. Um, and so all of the other cynicism and atmosphere and knowingness and fakey noir um, does seem draped around pretty good intentions. Maybe I'm just a sucker. Maybe I've gone soft, but um, I definitely felt that because I haven't seen a show like this since pre-08. I mean, I you know, I completely missed... Um, Gossip Girl, and you know, going back to like Dawson's Creek would have been the last one. Oh, right, right, right. That's the one I missed in my teen soap roundup. Uh, I am not sure I buy that theory because I think that the tone of Gossip Girl was very New York cosmopolitan and that it, I think there was, I mean, I think, you know, that had a blonde and a brunette as I Mm. glean from, you know, like media campaigns. (laughs) Um, But like, what were Blake Lively and Leighton Meester, if not like, a blonde and a brunette that competed for men and attention and dominance. Um, what like what is the deal with old school Veronica? Is she really evil? She's so she's like trying to be so nice so far in this show. I don't, I think Veronica had lots of different incarnations through the different comics, but to me, the, the Betty Veronica dynamic was that Veronica was rich. Right, that she was competitive and that she always wanted to mm-hmm. top Betty in everything and sort of yes. brag about how much money she spent. And so they've sort of offloaded those characteristics onto the yeah, the, exactly. the awful Cheryl Blossom, I guess because they want Betty and Veronica to be real friends. And I will say that there's some Bechdel test passing going on. While there is competition for Archie in the first two episodes, there's also a real friendship growing between the two of them in a moment when they toast with their milkshakes and say, you know, hose before bros. And Betty has a vanilla milkshake and Veronica has a chocolate milkshake. <laughs> All right, but as long as you guys are all on about this show's sweetness and how it was made possible by our our culture's greater mercy after the f- financial crash or whatever, it's do also... not co-sign that. By the way, just stipulated. <laughs> I'm sure Steve is wrong about that. I just don't know how. <laughs> but like, what do you make of the sudden turn to grisliness in episode two? Where there's this mm. moment, there's this kind of CSI moment where we witness the autopsy of the dead boy who's been found in a river, yes. and there's this kind of comic grotesque moment of him on a table. I just, the, to me, this was a show that wanted to jam in every possible TV sensation you could have, whether it was CSI frissons of witnessing a dead body being autopsied or, you know, teen swooning over Archie's abs. And then let's throw in a little bit of mm-hmm. kind of Twin yeah, Peaks. Moose is, Moose is know, gay, yeah. Twin I mean, Peaks, I all guess, that. I agree. I, I, I think there's a way in which teen versions of various genres um, just like get to be tonally sweeter and tonally a little more playful like everything everything can feel like my my first noir my first forensic show like my first, you know like it's kind of like play school 
genre. And and I think that's what, for the various teen soaps that I have loved over the years, like Buffy, um, that's what's appealing about them is that they can kind of try on modes in this way that just feels fun and sort of feels natural because the teens themselves are like trying, you know, the experience of being a teen is like trying out lots of different ways to feel about the world and trying them on with like very high drama. So the plausibility of... um, the confrontation between Cheryl and Betty in episode two, where like it is high drama and um, threats of murder are issued, like, and there's a strong ex- escalation of rhetoric, kind of feels, I don't know, I feel like you can kind of ride with it. I will say, though, that the the black people of Riverdale are relegated to like, it's like a very 90s portrayal of black people. Like if you if all the black people are in charge, then your movie is diverse and your show is fine. Like there's a black principal, a black mayor and black pop group and then no black students and nobody seems to be friends with anything. But they're all in such positions of authority that like the whole thing is fine and it's great. You know, I think the actress who plays uh, Veronica is Brazilian and perhaps her ethnicity will become part of the show as it goes on. But for the moment, she plays Veronica Lodge and her ethnicity appears to be brunette. So uh, I think I hope the show can get smarter about these matters. All right. So it's called Riverdale. It's on the CW. Uh, I love it. Julia loves it. Dana lives in darkness and fear. (laughs) Um, But we'll work to pull her out of it. All right. Moving on. Hell or High Water is a straight genre picture, which is to say a complete rarity. It comes from Scottish director David McKenzie, and it features not one, but two pairs of endearing buddies and yet takes place in the land of a supremely intelligent understatement. It's a heist caper, but much, much more, a meditation on wrestling something other than nihilism from this country's emptiest spaces on brotherly love and the banking industry's lack of it. Plus, it has suspense and violence and a lot of wit. It's a terrific movie in my estimation. It features very good work by its stars Chris Pine and Scott Foster as 30-something brothers on a bank-robbing spree across West Texas and a to my mind, absolutely standout performance from Jeff Bridges as the aging codger hot on their heels. But I will stop talking. Let's listen to a clip. Please stand up and take some cash to ma'am. I will not. We ain't asking. There's no money in the drawers yet. It's in the safe and I ain't got the code. Prove it. Drawer. Oh, there. Open the drawer. I need the keys. Keys. Step back! Damn it! Y'all are new at this, I'm guessing. Where's the money? I told you it's in the safe. Well, who has the code? Mr. Clausen. He'll be here soon, and I suggest you fellas don't be. All you're guilty of right now is being stupid. Just leave, and that's all it'll be. Tell me I'm stupid again. All right, Dana, let's uh, start with you. I can't hide my feelings for this movie. I really loved it. I'm really curious to know what you thought. Yeah, I loved it, too. I'm really glad we're talking about it after all this time. It was released back late last summer, I think. I'm glad we started with that scene, too. It's worth noting that that is the first scene in the movie. This is a movie that really jumps right out of the gate into the action. And I admire that the compactness of it. You know, I really I've really admired the storytelling. And I think it's worth pointing out that the screenplay, which is written by Taylor Sheridan, uh, is up for an Academy Award. And if there's one thing in this movie, besides Jeff Bridges, who's also nominated, that I think deserves recognition, it is the writing. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. I mean, it's up in that category, I believe, against um, Kenneth Lonergan for Manchester by the Sea. And I find it hard to imagine that any movie besides Manchester by the Sea is going to win that award this year. But this movie actually reminds me of that in how it begins in Media Race and the story of who these brothers are, why they're robbing these banks, why they're robbing the banks that they're robbing, who are the cops who are chasing them, and who's going to win this confrontation and why is unspooled very craftily by the script. Like you, you follow them, you follow the action and sort of learn the whys and wherefores in a really subtle, smart, uh, fascinating way as the film goes along. It's right. so I cleverly mean, done. And, and in a way that your sympathies are constantly shifting, right? Where the brothers are essentially the protagonists, even though they're bad guys, they're funny, they're endearing, they clearly are affectionate toward each other. And they're for us, the good guys, I would say, for the first half of the film or so. And even when, when our sympathies start to shift and we start to learn more about the Jeff Bridges 
character, the Texas Ranger that he plays, who's on the verge of retirement, and his partner, Gil Birmingham, it sort of cuts back and forth between these two sets of two men driving around West Texas, right? You're either with Jeff Bridges and Gil Birmingham, or you're with Ben Foster and Chris Pine, the brothers. And I just thought the movie was so effective at making both of those two dyads Mm -hmm. really interesting, sympathetic, important, complicated relationships. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, that's what's, I think, so unique about the movie is, uh, first, Julia, you're totally right. It 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 takes you deep into the story and backstory of especially of the brothers um, without using flashbacks. So in a way, as beautifully complex and kind of Russian doll-like as uh, Manchester by the Sea is, this is almost more of an achievement in a way. Um, there literally, I, do, I believe there is not a single flashback in the course of the film. It's told right. sequentially. Um, and, well, I object um, to the idea that flashback equals narrative weakness, but I, I hear I, you. But I, look, I, but you understand what I'm saying is that is that on a on a first pass with a screenplay like this, one way to tell it would be to flashback and not do it expositionally. And secondly, when you decide not to flashback and do it expositionally, to not do that clunkily, as if you're kind of prizing apart, you know, paragraphs in an article that you're writing, and um, it, you know, anyway, I I I thought it was elegant um at it a never feels minimum. like there's a scene where it's like remember how ma died yep. and we're yep. in hawk to Nothing. the banks mm. and oh gosh we probably better get our money back like the yep. it just is you can imagine the like the, yeah, the, sh- exactly. the shittily executed version of this like very no and, the, and you feel and it and it reads it reads on the screen like producer's notes right i mean and and that never happened and then the second thing was that you know es- essentially the really original thing about the film is that it's basically two buddy pictures in one in which my personally just my sympathies were evenly distributed between the two pairs uh throughout the whole movie though it deepened in interesting and unexpected ways with each of them especially the brothers um i think there ought to be a name for uh, and it plays that out honestly to the very end of the film which i which i thought was admirable um i think there ought to be a, a name a special name for that moment in a movie or a book where the title gets uttered by a character it often it often can land with a tiny bit of a thud um, or, or it seems a slightly overthought, but when it really works, right, it's, it's, it's kind of like with our show, right? When we come up with a title in the middle of doing it and then we insert it up at the top um, and it felt very much like that in this movie, that scene, and I won't give anything away because you could spoil this movie um, as superficially straightforward as, as it is, it's actually quite complex and interesting. But that scene where the title of the movie is finally uttered, to me, took this movie from a very good, accomplished, tight uh, genre picture to something more. Because at the heart of this movie, and I'm not going to spoil it, at the heart of this movie is basically, um, gimmick is exactly the wrong word, it's not a gimmick, but, but a reason, a, a real MacGuffin, a real reason for making the movie, um, around which I think everything else coheres and and i think you guys know what i'm talking about but that i i urge people to see it and just be on the lookout for that scene because to me that was when this bumped up from a from a solid b plus to a pretty much a flat a that and i i will say jeff bridges performance is, is special i'm really kind of rooting for him i mean bridges is fantastic but like i'm aware that bridges could be fantastic in a role like this i was more mm-hmm. impressed by um, both Chris Pine and Ben Foster. I know that I tend to lump Chris Pine in with the other Pines and that Dana immortally you said... You mean the other Chris's? Sorry, the other Chris's and Dana immortally said, no, the Pine stands tall. Um, <laughs> and I think I think she's correct. Like, this this movie really does show uh, the depth of his range in a smart way. And Ben Foster is also, like, manic and... Mani- he's, like, small and wiry and electric and menacing in... And the plays the danger of that character in a way that's very very real and very underplayed. He doesn't he doesn't play him as a macho strutting kind of guy. He's an ex-con. He's a little bit shady. And he's, he's the smaller and kind of more physically slight of the two brothers, but the one who's more gonzo and willing to do more yeah, crazy Yeah, it's like things. if you met those two guys in an alley, like who seems scarier, who seems like they could more immediately hurt you, like Chris Pine seems brawnier, right? Um, but he they he played like the mercurial menace of that role in in really startling, striking ways. Ben Foster is one of those actors who looks so different and is so different in different roles that it takes it takes years to suddenly realize that you've been watching the same guy in the all whole these time. Roles. Yeah, he's he's terrific. Um, but so uh, all the performances are great. I think you're right that it's a double buddy comedy. I, people in Hollywood talk about a two hander. This is sort of a four hander in a way, and that's like unusual. Uh, about it. Um, and then I think it's also worth noting that it's 
It's another financial crisis movie, basically. I mean, we've talked about many of them in the, you know, now nearly 10 years since the financial crisis, right? Uh, but I think this is one of the best. Maybe second only to Magic Mike, which I know uh, Steve mm-hmm. and I both read as an important economic document. <laughs> this this takes a more straight ahead and, and less uh, whimsical approach toward the disempowerment of uh, the uh, under middle class um, yeah. working class. And it also shows a different, I mean, when we, this, the financial crash movies tend to be either set on Wall Street or, you know, in some sort of urban setting. And the fact that this takes place sort of in the middle of nowhere where everything is foreclosed and shut down and emptied out and that they're sort of in, you know, they're kind of in a, in a ruined landscape adds a, a different feel to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it harkens back to Bonnie and Clyde, which I think takes place in this part of the world. Um, and uh, you got to love any movie that features a regional bank as its villain. Um, but anyway, we'll leave it there. Um, Hell, or, Hell or High Water, we all love it. Three huge thumbs up. Try to catch it before the Oscars. It's 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 a gem. It's a really, really, really good movie. All right, moving on. All right, I have to confess I have no introduction written, but no introduction is necessary because we are joined by Seth Stevenson, Slate Treasure, National Treasure, and friend of the program. Um, Seth, it's that time of year again. Welcome to the show where you're here to talk about Super Bowl ads. Um, give me a give me a global read here. Um, did it feel this year as though they had somewhat less uh, trench, trenchancy or traction or relevancy, or is that just um, a um, a deflated non Patriots fan uh, perspective? No, I think you're right. I you know usually in the lead up to the game, a lot of the brands will release their ads you know a few days before the game to start building excitement and hopefully people are talking about them. But I think that lead up period, the the ads got completely drowned out by geopolitical events, right? I mean, I, nobody was really talking about the Super Bowl ads in the days before the game, as best I could tell. And then during the game, the, the game itself was um, exciting, as you may have noticed. And, and I think the ads got um, a little of their thunder stolen by the action on the field. Um, the only ads people were really talking about were the ones that had some sort of political take um, and even those, I mean, the things that we, we defined as a political take this year were just like, you know, like sort of vaguely positive vibes towards humanity somehow felt like a political <laughs> statement this year. Um, but all the ads that were just, you know, one-off jokes, I felt like those got completely lost in the shuffle. You know, Melissa McCarthy is brilliant in everything she touches. And she did an ad for Kia in which uh, it suggested that like fighting for the environment results in Melissa McCarthy hilarious pratfalls. So why don't you just buy like a green car? Um, you know, that was kind of funny, but like who, I don't know, who yeah. it just felt so irrelevant. Hey, Melissa, the whales need your help. I love whales! Go, Melissa! I did chuckle at that one when they when they said Melissa the rhinos need you and ju- as they she says rhinos and you know what's coming you know the rhino horn and Melissa McCarthy's ass are somehow going to be involved in, in hilarious physical comedy and I did sort of laugh in anticipation of that moment but you're right like it just it just felt like oh who you know who cares there's there's mm-hmm. like the game is one of the most exciting Super Bowls ever and oh by the way the world outside is in flames right and even Lady Gaga's uh, halftime show was like solid I mean I'm not a Gaga partisan particularly, but she was like hustling and uh, made made it possible to sing about uh, sexual and gender identity on stage in the middle of the halftime show. And, you know, she, she seemed like she did a proper Gaga halftime show. I didn't like that they faked her jumping off the stadium roof. That wasn't real, you know. That was faked. I wanted her to actually jump off the stadium roof and bungee jump onto the stage, but it, that was the magic of, of visual effects. Ah, uh, well... She was suspended on a wire, though, at one point, correct? Yes, but she did not like all the way from the top of the stadium. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. All right. Well, in any event, there was a lot going on. I mean, to me, I think the, the thing that's always surprising about the crop of Super Bowl ads is that inevitably they capture some kind of zeitgeist that's fun to dissect. And some years you're like, whoa, retrograde machismo is like what it's all about. Like, that's troubling. And then the year after, it's like, wow, would the women really have it? What a women-friendly group of ads. And like, it's all like, you know, tearful dads and empowered moms and dads loading the dishwasher and whatever else. And then, you know, like it it, it progresses. Um, and this year's crop did have um, sort of Coca-Cola commercial human appreciation as its main theme, like different languages are good, 
People of different races make phone calls to one another. Nobody wants to hit anybody with a car, uh, you know, like, which is better than the alternative. Like, it would have been more appalling if the ads had taken a uh, Trumpian stance of, if there was like a big crop of like white power commercials. But, you know, America's marketers are now forced to be um, blandly liberal because they understand that's what the majority of their consumer base wants. And... Uh, and yet, instead of feeling like, yay, in addition to the marchers in Washington and the avid protesters and hardworking lawyers at America's airports, even America's corporations are getting on board with a set of exciting anti-Trump ads. It, like, it just felt thin. Like it didn't. Well, one exception to that, I mean, I'm not going to say it's the greatest ad in the world, but a very explicit. You know, a place where a company did, I think, go out on a limb that didn't really have to was the uh, the Anheuser-Busch ad that actually followed the refugees' journey of, I guess it was Bush, right, that they were mm-hmm. following Adolphus him. Adolphus Bush. I want to brew a beer. Welcome to America. You don't want it here. Go back home. Following his, his immigration into the country and meeting Anheuser and the two of them having a beer together and deciding to market beer, that seemed like something that had to have been plotted out. I mean, it almost seemed like they wouldn't have had time since the refugee ban was mm-hmm. announced to throw that idea together. Well, they said they'd been working on it since back in May. Um, so, yes, it was it was long before recent events. At the same time, you know, immigration was a huge issue in the campaign at that point anyway. So they had to know they would they were making some kind of statement by talking about immigration even back then. The thing is, this was, you know, they very clearly in the ad show his papers being stamped as a legal immigrant, <laughs> that he in fact has like a visa or everything is Extreme approved. vetting. How yeah. hoppy do you like your beer, sir? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's, it, it, but, and yet still, and I think that was, I have to say, I mean, grading on a curve, that, that was a fairly bold move for an old, traditional, massive brand to make any kind of statement like that in this client. They didn't have to do that, and they did. And so I sort of give them some kudos for that. Mm -hmm. And yet it still has apparently engendered a bud boycott among some people just for talking about showing a legal immigrant coming into this country and facing like a little bit of xenophobia. And having started like a uh, a massive company that probably contributed not insignificantly to our GDP before it was bought by foreigners. Employs thousands and thousands of people. Yeah, I don't know. Right. That That ad is striking. I think just the 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 extent, you know, enormity is one of those words that you're not supposed to use unless you really fucking mean it. But like the enormity of the political moment just means that mm-hmm. even the most, you know, brave corporate marketing statement to me just felt insufficient to mm-hmm. the, the time we're living right. in. I would qualify that a little bit, Julia, only by saying what is the core brand image and target audience of Budweiser beer? I mean, it really is almost something at this point that you drink in reaction to all the floral, hoppy, IPA, you know, coastal elitists. I mean, it really is. It's 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 right there with guns and NASCAR as a means of, you know, um, self-identification among Trump voters. Right. I mean, the beer called itself America for several months over the course of this summer. Um, you know, and I, and so in that sense, I'll take whatever daring Anheuser Busch is is willing to give me. Um, but there was another ad, Seth, right? The Lumber Eighty Four. What was the oh, company explain called? that to us? Seth, I, I wish I could explain that to you. I, it is just it's just shrouded in in confusion for me. So this was the ad where you see um, Spanish speaking mother and daughter. It, 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 for every indication is that they are illegal Mexican immigrants headed towards the American border. And we see them on their way and their hardships. They're walking along the railroad tracks. Um, they reach a cha- they reach a barbed wire fence, and then the ad just abruptly ends and says, "See the see the rest of the ad on 84lumber.com." Well, 84lumber.com crashed at halftime, and so no one saw the end of the ad. But I can tell you that what happens is the little girl has been gathering bits of fabric along their journey, and she's sewn them into an Ameri- a little makeshift American flag that she waves in front of her mother. Her mother is very emotionally moved by that, and they discover and they hit a big border wall. And then it turns out we've also been seeing these construction men building something this whole time, which I guess is the connection to 84 Lumber because they're building supplier. I'm not sure. Anyway, these construction guys and hard hats have been building something. But not the wall. But it's not the wall. They're (laughs) building a big, beautiful door. And then the mother and daughter push open the door and come into the country. 
I have no idea what the message of this was. And the interview with the with 84 Lumber's owners, this woman who appeared to be in her 40s or 50s, it's family owned and she inherited the company. It, that also shed no light on what this meant. Like she she was a Trump voter, for one. Um, and then as best I could tell, I'm reading between the lines of what she said. You can you can look at the article and see and read her quotes for yourself. But I think she was saying she wanted to encourage more cheap labor to come to America so that 84 oh, Lumber could have cheap labor. Oh, and that's what the ad was trying to do. It was really confusing to me. That seems crazy. Yes, it does seem crazy. But go read the quotes and tell me if that's not what she was saying. It really suggested that she was like, come undocumented immigrants to this country. 84 Lumber has your back and oh will pay God. you below market wages. Ms. McGurko, who said she voted for Mr. Trump, said the ad was meant to recruit employees in their 20s who really believe in American dreams. She expressed concerns about the labor shortage her company is facing. She said she had a welcoming attitude towards certain immigrants while providing the caveat that she had faith in elected officials to make the decisions to make us safe. Quote, I am all about those people who are willing to fight and go that extra yard to make a difference. And then if they have to, you know, climb higher, go under. Do whatever it takes to become a citizen. I'm all for that 110%, she said. But do I want cartels? Hell no. Uh, She goes on later in the article to issue a couple other quotes. One, she says some people might think she was, quote, as crazy as a loon to go out there and buy this enormous ad that makes no sense financially. Uh, I'm sure I'm going to have economists and all these people say she's an idiot. And maybe I am, she said. But I'm an idiot that has some money now that my people made for me. And I owe it to them to say that they're great. And I need more people like them. That I think your interpretation of this more of, people like her, who more people like people who come from Mexico and, and go under a wall and go under. Oh, <laughs> Lumber lady, what has confused views? Wow, yeah, that's hard to count that out as a marketing triumph. That is really dispiriting. Though it raises another issue, Seth. I'm wondering if you noticed this. I found for the vast majority of the ads that the connection between the narrative an entertaining portion of it to the brand was as tenuous as I had ever seen it. It was it was hard for me to remember what the yearbook ad, which is very distinctive, visually distinctive and and conceptually um, you know, original ad for Honda, like its connection to Honda felt completely tenuous to me. There was another car commercial that struck me the same. The Melissa McCarthy ad, also very tenuous in a way. Um, one exception, I think, would be Sexy Mr. Clean. And the, uh, I thought the most <laughs> successful ad of the Super Bowl this year by far, personally, was the Malkovich ad, which I thought was a complete comic gem um, and and did hammer home the connection uh, uh, between the little vignette and the, and the, and the product. How is it that JohnMalkovich.com is taken Somebody already snatched it. But I'm him. There's a film about me being me. Isn't it a movie about other people being inside you? But did you sense that this year that, that there was somehow a looser connection? Um, I did. Between the creativity of the ad and, and the, its power to, to promote its brand. I did. I, I'll first say I also enjoyed the Malkovich ad. And if you liked it, you should go. There are outtakes with Malkovich that are amazing <laughs> oh, on the website and are actually worth to going to look at. Um, I think you're totally right. This has been a hobby horse of mine for a long time writing about advertising is how brands, you know, do do all this stuff and they, they completely forget to link the content of the ad to the brand to cement it in the viewer's mind, which to me is the most important part. That's the part that matters is having people associate the content of the ad with a brand. Um, and they, and I think you're I think you're right. Audi had this long sort of yes. um, pro-gender equality ad where in the final 1.5 seconds of the ad, you see an Audi. And I'm not sure anyone's going to remember which car that was I'm for. I'm sure that if I buy an Audi, equal pay will be rot across the land. Well, that's what their <laughs> press release said, Julia. Are you going to doubt that? Um, but there, there are many others. One, there was one for pistachios that had an elephant on a treadmill. What does that have to do with pistachios? Why does that make me think of pistachios in any way? Um, the, one, the ones that I felt were, were good, Steve, on this metric were the... Um, the one with Christopher Walken and Justin Timberlake, where mm-hmm. uh, the it, Christopher Walken does a dramatic reading of "Bye Bye Bye" by InSync, and the brand is "Bye" uh, B A I, a, 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 a an enhanced water brand. It might sound crazy, but it ain't no lie, baby. Bye bye bye. That was, you know, that's where that makes a lot of sense to me. Now we're, we're going to remember "Bye Bye Bye" and "Buy the Brand." It's cements the mnemonic in your head. Um, another one. Um, that I liked was the one for, I also talked about this one last year, I think sort of to, to, um, uh, Julia's delight, the, the Purcell, um, ProClean detergent ad, which had Bill Nye, the science guy. There goes another lab coat. Ah, Bill. Need a hand? 
Purcell's new and improved formula delivers 10 dimensions of clean. Looks clean, feels clean, smells clean. They managed to put that Purcell um, bottle, that, that detergent bottle on screen just the entire time in your face. And at one point they had 10 of them on screen at once. And that was someone, I appreciate that. That was someone in marketing who was like, we want this bottle on screen everywhere we can put it. And then you actually remember what the brand was for. But I agree, I agree that a lot of brands make that mistake. And I just said, you're spending $5 million to, to spend 30 seconds in front of America's eyeballs. And you're not going to bother to put your product front and center. That seems crazy to me. Well, and to compare Purcell, which is, uh, in my view, a detergent that has like very low name recognition. It's like the the uh, it's an interloper. It's a disruptor. It's, it's the hydrox of detergents. Yeah, it's like not the Coke and it's not the Pepsi and it's like not even the Dr Pepper of detergents. It's like it's not on these shores. It's like RC Cola or something. And and there was also an extremely prominent, elaborate, like Baroque Tide ad. Like Tide is shown for like a nano in that ad and. That ad seemed like absolutely just advertising run amok. At least the inciting incident is a stain. So it sort of <laughs> has to do with the product. But yes, I agree. Uh, my favorite, um, like, what the fuck moment of watching the ads was the ad for Yellowtail, the like, that cheap wine, which was like a Madison Avenue storyboard blender of an ad. There was like a hot girl and like a party on the roof that seemed kind of lame, but you were supposed to think it was cool and a DJ. And it basically was an ad for wine as though wine were beer. This is a kangaroo. If you see him rolling a party, it's a good party. Because that yellowtail, we believe in fun. I will, de- I will defend it on this score, which is that their their entire brand is Australian wine. We are an Australian wine. That is the differentiator. That's the thing that makes us different. And so they make a kangaroo. The whole ad has a kangaroo, like can- DJ kangaroo on the turntables at the party. Kangaroo and, when- and a hot girl. Yes. And so and so it does, I, I think, sort of continue to push this, like, we're the Australian wine. Remember? Remember us? Australian. And I, I'll give it some points on that. But I agree that the themes, the execution were pretty lame. All right. Well, I think that that's a wrap, Seth. It is. Uh, you are. Um, you're a. You're an SFOP. You're a special friend of the program. It's always really great to have you on. It's been too long, and let's get get you back soon. Thanks, Steve. I'm sorry that you had to endure yet another Patriots win, but I'll tell you this year, I myself was half rooting against them, so I'm half sympathize with you. Hmm. Um. I I take your half sympathy and I um spit on it. Great. <laughs> great talking. Um. Thanks, guys. Bye, Seth. Bye, Seth. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse day. Yes. My endorsement this week is meant to deliver a few little jolts of pleasure to people who are on Twitter like me and find themselves getting depressed by the constant flow of horrible political news and anger about horrible political news. And Twitter, I think, is generally agreed on to be a less fun place to be since Donald Trump has taken over all of our minds. But I wanted to recommend a couple of people on the service who are great image tweeters and who just find beautiful things to put into your feed that suddenly pop up and give you a little little eye rest or eye stretch in the middle of the day. And uh, neither of them are visual artists. One is a writer and one is a filmmaker. Well, I guess filmmakers are kind of visual artists, but they they post art. They post photography and paintings and things that they see that are beautiful. And I always get something out of following them. So one of them is a novelist named Rabi Ameladeen. I hope I'm saying his name right. It's difficult to spell, but we'll put it on our show page. And he is particularly prone to tweeting paintings, like a William Blake painting he put up today, or he'll put a photograph of a sculpture. But he just has great taste and sort of a great sense of humor and finds fun things to put up. The other is a really great filmmaker who I should also be endorsing as a filmmaker named Rithi Pan. He's a Cambodian filmmaker who made this great, great avant-garde sort of documentary about the Cambodian massacre that's called The Missing Picture. But his Twitter feed is this unexpected delight of essentially photography curation. He just seems to know a lot about the history of photography and goes and finds these black and white gems and beautiful shots by some famous artists, some I've never heard of, but always happy to see something from either Rithi Pan or Rabi Ameladeen come through my Twitter. So we'll link to both of those Twitter feeds so you can follow them if you wish. I really love the idea that you need to take care of your Twitter biome. Like these seem like probiotics for your Twitter biome. Like <laughs> you need you need to kind of uh, leaven the feed with some healthy instruments. I've been um, 
finding myself taking particular pleasure in three bot accounts that I follow. One which tweets regular lines from Shakespeare, mm-hmm. one which tweets regular lines from Moby Dick, and one which just tweets a different color every day. It's like tweets just like a randomized square of color, a the Pantone full size. color with the name. It's not Pantone because that's not how color works on screens. It's the it's one it's one of the colors that can be made through the RGB on your screen. But every so often you just get like a gigantic swatch of like oceanic blue or like some kind of electric fuchsia. And it's like, okay, a pause, a pause, a wordless pause of color. Um, Yeah, those eye scrubs are important. And of course, animal feeds of which there's an endless proliferation of different kinds serve somewhat the same function. I love a Japanese feed called Foxbot that just finds great pictures of foxes and (laughs) throws them at you when you need them. Um, I'll put the handles for those three feeds that I talked about on our show page as well. Uh, fantastic. All right, Julia, what do you have? Uh, okay, well, bonus to the endorsement I shoehorned into Dana's endorsement. Um, I mentioned this on Slate Plus a couple weeks ago, but this cultural object is giving me so much pleasure that I cannot withhold it from the broader audience any longer. I'm an enormous fan of the podcast Who Weekly. Uh, its hosts are Bobby Finger and Lindsay Weber, two smart writers. Essentially, it is a semi-weekly recap of tabloid happenings. The origin of the show's name is that all celebrities can be divided into who's and them's. A them is like a properly famous celebrity, a Julia Roberts, a Reese Witherspoon, someone whom almost everybody knows. And all the other people are who's, like the random people who have become famous by dint of being like judges on Dancing with the Stars or dancers on Dancing with the Stars or people who are waitresses in a Real Housewives spinoff show or something like that. I've learned about the Vanderpumps on this <laughs> podcast, and I, I would not say that's something that I need to have learned about, but these two are just so smart. Their banter is so delightful. Uh, they have exactly the right perspective on um, <laughs> fame and are interested in it and how much you should actually care about it and how much you do care about it. And the the it basically sounds like hanging out with friends on like a Saturday afternoon going on a Google tear being like, who is that person? Why is she fa- like, why is Kobe Smulders name? Kobe Smulders, like what an absurd name for a person that famous. And they go find out her real name and then they riff about it. It's just it's it's a fantastic palate cleanser at the current moment. And they're un- they're socially aware enough to understand that their topic is not exactly topic A in the world right now. And yet I've been finding it to be um, great listening. So the, again, the podcast is Who Weekly, hosted by Bobby Finger and Lindsay Weber. I think I'm going to endorse one thing from two separate angles. So uh, that one thing improbably is the singer-songwriter, uh, Lindsay Buckingham, most famous for being one of the principals of uh, Fleetwood Mac, the band Fleetwood Mac. But um, I feel like he's gotten kind of a, a little bit of a bad shake for a guy who's had all the sex and cocaine um, that money could possibly buy and fame and glory. And yet, in a way, he's sort of a forgotten songwriter. I mean, the amazing thing is that Fleetwood Mac was an almost complete anomaly um, uh, along the lines of the Beatles, which is that it featured three highly, highly, highly gifted um, songwriters, uh, which is one of the reasons why they produced, I think, such kind of richly i mean they just produced so many hits and i mean they kind of had a very uniform sound but they had three really distinct sensibilities at the at the heart of them and buckingham he kind of suffers also from being a californian who's a little too handsome right i mean he's just verging on kind of rob Lowe. so one is um you know one is tempted to impute to him uh shallowness uh, and glibness, but the truth is, he's a magnificently gifted musician and songwriter. I think, uh, and so I'm endorsing him through angle number one is the album Tusk, which um, I think begins to really prove out his genius a little bit more. I actually think those two, the first two um, Fleetwood Mac albums that featured both Buckingham and Nicks are both obvious classics. I mean, Rumors is one of the most you know best-selling albums of all time. But um, but for being so popular, I think that they get lumped in almost a little bit too much with like the Eagles in people's imagination. The songwriting is exquisite. The harmonies are exquisite. Um, they were just a, tr- a tremendously gifted and interesting um, pop band, uh, soft rock band or whatever. But Tusk is, they, they, they kind of shot for the moon. And I think the common perception is that they missed, though the truth is the best work on Tusk is their best work. Uh, and the song Walketh in Line especially 
now you can get on Spotify, you know, some special edition of Tusk, which is like 60 takes or something for every song, which may seem like overkill, but actually some of the various takes of the song Walk a Thin Line, a Lindsay Buckingham song, are so achingly beautiful. I mean, they're they're perfect pieces of pop songwriting. Um, there's just a lot of material there. I highly recommend it. And then the second album is that if you're a nerd like I am and a bit of a guitar nerd or a groupie, um, I'm always really interested to hear how famous guitarists learned how to play because it's if if you're I mean even a shite musician like me feels as though it's part of his biography like when you got a first got a guitar when you first learned how to figure f- figure out a song or play a song you know all that stuff and and it's these guys like these guys are even the gr- absolute greats like Buckingham is a very very good but very self-taught guitarist he's uh, there's a video of him um, we'll link to it describing how he taught himself how to play guitar and what his style is and what it's a melange of. He's very articulate and very aware of what his strengths and limitations are as a musician and how that bears uh, upon his biography as a musician, like when he got a guitar and what he was listening to then. And it's fascinating. So um, so it's a double Lindsay Buckingham with, with a um, footnote, which is that uh, there are many such videos on the internet, like, like some for example, Mark Knopfler, also I think a largely self-taught guitarist, but an absolute virtuoso, in fact, can kind of do anything on a guitar, um, but also is self-taught, and so he does it distinctively in, in a style that's very much his own. There's a, a video called Guitar Stories, where the bassist in his band, uh, his old mate, you know, they're now in their, looks like their 60s, it looks as though it was very recently made, go back to like the first guitar shop where a young and not very well-off Mark Knopfler stared like, you know, Keats through the sweet shop window at guitars that he couldn't afford and how the first one was cheap but serviceable. I mean, it's wonderful piece of musician biography um, and, you know, the kind of mystical relationship, nerdy, sex-deprived, you know, adolescent and pre-adolescent boys have with um, with this instrument out of which came, you know, rock and roll. Uh, so anyway, um, uh, but principally, Lindsey Buckingham, I think um, for a man who's sold that many records, grossly underrated, uh, a really, really fantastic songwriter. All right. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gabfest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out an entire roster of like and unlike-minded shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest, and our theme song is composed by Oscar-nominated composer Nick Brittell, which means that essentially we are an Oscar-nominated podcast, the very first. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. We'll, we'll see you next week. I look forward to your acceptance speech, Steve. <laughs> 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 <sighs>